Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Douglas Rushkoff, writer and thinker. His most recent book is Team Human, and he also hosts a podcast of the same name. He's written over 20 books, including Present Shock, Life Inc., Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, just to name a few. I've been fortunate to have interviewed and spoken to and and talked with Douglas several times um, over the past few years, and it's always a conversation that I very much look forward to. Um, We throw around these terms like futurist and any number of other types of ideas. And I always like to refer to Douglas as a thinker because that's one of the highest compliments I can pay someone. He is a critical voice that has been often prescient as to what is happening in media and technology. So it's always wonderful to talk to you and welcome to the deep dive, my friend. Hey, good to be with you. You'll help me tread water if it gets a little too deep for me. It can't get too deep for you, man. All right. We've been doing this for a, a while and there's so much going on in the backdrop of this conversation. Obviously, we're dealing with a global pandemic, which I guess at this moment in time, many people might have backburnered as we're also dealing with, you know, a lot of conversations around race, racism, racial injustice. And all of this is happening at a time of kind of political pandemonium that has existed in the United States for quite some time. And to kind of get to the root of our conversation in in bits and pieces also happening while there's incredible technological and media forces that are amplifying and exacerbating all of these things that I just listed. So even though I want to really spend a lot of time on Team Human, because I think that's a very critical conversation to have at this moment because we're seeing real human issues, whether it's in health or social, being acted out against all these different backdrops. So I want to give you an opportunity to basically explain the team human thesis to listeners who might not have read the book or or might not be with that familiar. And then we can get into all these other isms that are yeah. existing around us. Sure. I mean, team human basically just argues that being human is a team sport that we've been living in a society that kind of promotes the idea of the selfish individual under, you know, capitalism as kind of the primary unit of humanity and individual rights and acquisition of stuff. And I really, I'm looking at the problems with that. You know, once we understand our more social nature and look at evolution really as the story of increasingly complex modes of collaboration and communication between people, then you start to understand that, oh, wow, this whole myth of the market as this battle between competitive individuals and how we should somehow, you know, try to get as much stuff and money as we can, you know, and then somehow retire a really dark and difficult way to move through, to move through life. And, you know, and I really, I trace it all the way back to, you know, where did this start? Whether we look at, you know, the invention of text and history and the Judeo-Christian line of thinking and agriculture and all, or whether we look more recently at, you know, the invention of empirical science, which is this guy, Francis Bacon in, in the Renaissance, who was arguing that science would let us grab nature by the forelock and hold her down and subdue her to our will, you know, which is a rape fantasy for scientific progress. We end up in this a real dominator kind of mentality. And it was one thing, you know, until to live with that right through the industrial age. But now that we have digital tools, when we apply this strident individualism and hyper-competitive understandings of the world to digital technology, we end up developing tools and platforms that isolate us and atomize us from one another. You know, that the object of the game of technology is really to control people with it, to use the algorithms from slot machines and import them to your social media feeds or to externalize the impact 
of our companies on real people and the environment, which it's real easy to do with tech. And basically to have an underclass of people running around delivering crap to us that we buy on Amazon or working as slaves in China to, you know, wipe the fingerprints off our phones with chemicals that lead to them aborting their own babies. I mean, it's this really angry, dehumanized landscape that we're in, where we're trying to kind of auto-tune all the weird, wonderful things about people just out of existence. So team human is a way of saying, no, no, anything that brings us together is our friend. And what you really have to do in order to move this thing forward is find the others, the people that you've been othering, find the human being in them, look at them in the eyes, reestablish rapport in the real world, breathe together. And we have the beginnings of what will eventually lead to solidarity and maybe the reification of civilization. In that statement, there's there's so much going on around the stories that we've chosen to tell, also the stories that we've chosen to amplify, you know, this idea of empirical science, whether you're tracing that through Francis Bacon and the Renaissance, these ideas of man, I'm using man in the pejorative of how they've used it in the past. If you read those kind of texts, it, of course, only refers to men, not women. But nonetheless, I'm using their language on purpose. These ideas of the mechanical nature of our existence, meaning man as machine, our brains first as clocks. Now we take that forward to our brains as data processors. You know, we're kind of multitasking. All of these metaphors are all in service to that central type of story. How do we amplify other stories, because many of those stories are really centered in, a, and you mentioned that Judeo-Christian Western way of looking at the world as compared to others' narratives and stories that have existed, whether it's in indigenous cultures, East Asia, South Asia. So I'm just thinking about that battle. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, kind of as a, as a theory kind of person, I tend to look at the structure of the stories almost more than the content. Mm-hmm. And It feels like the kinds of stories that we tell are all masculine in nature. You know, that they go back to this sort of Aristotle identified what we were doing when he, you know, looked at the structure of the story and the poetics. And he basically said, you know, you come up with a a hero, some dude, and he goes up the inclined plane of tension, making all these you know, choices until you can't take it anymore until he's in such trouble that he has a reversal and a recognition and then a climax. So it's kind of this, this story structure of crisis, climax, relief, which is the male orgasm curve of, of narrative, you know, and it was the sort of Western understanding of story that happens through time and that you go through this experience and then are different at the end than you were at the beginning. You've made some notion, some kind of progress. Even if you've died, you've progressed. And this whole understanding of time, time-based linear narrative was invented, you know, and it wasn't the way we live for the majority of our time on the planet. You know, for, for the majority of human history, we understood things very circularly. Our stories were seasonal and they were about regeneration and reincarnation. Indigenous people didn't think in and still don't, don't think in linear time. They think in circular time, how everything comes back. You know, there's reincarnation, the soil regenerates. They don't even believe that human beings can do anything genuinely new. Every action that a human does is an imitation of something the gods or your ancestors have already done before. So in the West, you know, really, I guess around the time of agriculture, we got writing and I'm really big into media. We got writing and that changed everything. Once we could write things down, we could write history and we could write contracts into the future. So now we had a story in the past and we had agreements moving into the future. Once we had a past, a present, and a future, I mean, in, in, in a good sense, we started to think about, well, how could we make this year better than last year? And how can we make next year better than this year? You know, when the Jews did it in a, essentially, a, or the Israelites in a well-meaning way, we're going to 
make social justice happen. We're going to kind of keep our eyes on the prize toward that messianic age in the future. We're going to work together. And in a kind of ends justifies the means battle where we kill the Amalites and the Canaanites and some other people along the way, but we're going to get a nice ending. You know, and that is the, the narrative structure that we're still using now. It's the Monsanto view of the topsoil where, yes, it's getting worse, but we're going to come up with another invention and then we're going to be able to grow alfalfa on a rock. You know, don't worry, pedal to the metal, keep on going. The only way out is through. And I think what many of us are realizing is, no, you know, that's nice progress in tractors and cement and all that, you know, that West Coast, you know, Elon Musk, let's just dig more holes so we can have more cars mentality to the, wait a minute, maybe we need to retrieve some of these more regenerative permaculture, indigenous circular understandings of things that sort of people who are not just white Western European males coming, expanding to America and taking stuff from other people that that needs to be at least balanced <laughs> yeah. with a more nurturing female indigenous sensibility. That idea of time and the future that you mentioned, like having a conversation around the construct of time being something that's fluid in the way you describe it, you can, you can almost see the attachment to scale and growth becoming part of that future narrative. Because if you're thinking I need to make you know, this year was look like this and then next year has got to look better. This sounds like where we're introducing now shareholder talk, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's not enough to sustain or to regenerate because now we need to have this idea of growth and scale. Yeah. And we built that story. in. We built that into the economy. You know, we had almost the equivalent of an indigenous economy, you know, with the early marketplaces of late medieval Europe. We had people making stuff and trading stuff and getting wealthy through a very circular economy where people traded and exchanged value with each other. The problem was the monarchs were getting poor as the people were getting wealthy. So they put a clock into commerce. They said, you can't trade with each other anymore. You have to borrow money. You have to borrow currency from a central treasury at interest. So there was a clock in money. Once you take the money, you've got to pay it back at a high rate of interest. If you've got to pay back interest for all the money you use, then the economy has to grow. Your business has to grow. Pepsi and Coke and Exxon, they still have to grow, even though they're multi-billion dollar companies in the Fortune 50 at this point, or the Ford, whatever they are. They're the biggest companies in the world. I was at a shareholder meeting for one of them, and they were chanting 5.2, 5.2. It was the growth target for that year. And I got up there to do my talk. I'm like, Jesus, if you guys have to grow at 5.2, then the rest of us are just totally screwed. You know, there's no way that business can right size anymore because business is not in the service of its own enterprise. Business is in the service of the banks that are giving it the money, the bankers who are really passively making money off the monopoly they have on capital. And there's no new markets, right? Like, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've traveled all over. I've traveled all over. There's very few places that I could think of that I've gone where you can't find a Coke, you know, like, so it's like, where else are they going to? They seem to have penetrated go. pretty much everywhere that they, you would hope that a company could right size, you know, and it's really, really hard in this environment to right size anything. And if you can't right size a company and you're living in an economy where there is no sustainable plateau that you can reach, um, then why do you think everybody's so anxious? Then why is everybody, you know, why are we all running out of time and, and all working harder and, and going crazy? It's because we are living in an operating system that's demanding growth and acceleration and just the human psyche and our environment and can't sustain that. I don't want to go too far before I jump on them, that masculine feminine piece, mm. because when you were giving the Francis Bacon example, the idea of nature, mother nature, right? Our concept of nature is typically feminine, you know, mother mother, nature, father, father time. Yeah. Mother earth. Right. <laughs> yeah. And in that idea of, of how masculine behavior, patriarchy is acted out, you see where when we think about 
nature, it's, it tends to be exploitive and extractive, right? It's, it's very much like the dominant relationship that existed that we've now tried to counter between men and women in general, right? So we're, yeah. we're kind of fighting a deeper story in a way. Yeah. I mean, and once you see it, it becomes really hard to unsee. I mean, every time I even see somebody just taking a shovel and digging it into the soil and I'm thinking about the soil matrix that's getting disturbed and the living that the planet is alive. So every time you're taking a caterpillar tractor and digging it in there, it's like, wow, you're just like clawing into the skin of a living thing that we're a part of. I mean, you look at even um, indigenous people that were doing agriculture, didn't do it in that aggressive kind of rapo way. So once you see it, I mean, and it's not like, oh, men are bad and women are good or something like that. It's more kind of archetypal male and female, you know, relationships to stuff. So I don't want to get too far down, kind of overdetermined understanding of gender, but it's this dominator, the dominator mentality that nature is something that we exploit rather than something that we're genuinely a part of. And, you know, that leads me into thinking about complexity, right? Because- when you start to think about the connectedness of systems, how human beings relate to and are part of nature and the planet, that's a complex system. But yet it seems that we're looking for simplification yeah. in almost everything that we do. We're, uh, we're very uncomfortable, and I'm painting with a broad brush, yeah. with tackling complex fl- ideas that flow. Yeah, but that's because once you decide to embrace complexity, you actually have to be conscious. You have to be on. You know, it's like the easiest way to explain complexity to people is in the difference between traffic lights and traffic circles. You know, it's a great metaphor. You know, traffic lights are complicated. And a city that's orchestrated with traffic lights is complicated. You got to have all these switches and things and red and green and yellow. And you got to tell people what that is. Traffic circles are complex. One or two little rules, which is whoever's already in the circle has right of way and move to the right. That's all you need to know for a traffic circle to work. But you actually have to be conscious. You have to. But when you use real traffic circles, nobody's sitting at a light when there's no one else there. It actually moves the traffic faster, but it requires a modicum of coordination and looking at other people and being present. So in America, it's like, no, 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 we're not going to do traffic circles. That's for you weird European cooperative people who are going to negotiate your way through traffic. We can't do that here. And we got lights and it's electricity and it's more expensive and it's shiny. And that's sort of what it is. And in the West, we just have traffic lights for everything because we don't trust human beings to be able to engage with each other. We are so desocialized in the West that we can't even agree who's going to go around the circle first. (laughs) I love that trust is now bubbling up, right? Because in my work, when people are thinking about doodads and the latest device and all this kind of stuff, I'm like, these are all human things, right? We're talking about really core values like trust, right? So kind of tell me about how we can better elevate the human experience in the face of the technology, the digital space, which in, in many ways feels very addictive. Like if it sounds like it was designed to be addictive and it seems like it's working pretty damn well. So how do we, how do we counter this addiction? Well, I mean, for me, I always try to remember where this stuff came from, you know, and most of the digital technology that we use, the stuff that was, you know, developed in the late 80s and early 90s was really part of an explosion of weirdness and human potential. You know, it was acid heads and grateful dead people and California dreamers who were building these first things. And the cultural environment in which these things were created was quantum physics and chaos math and fantasy role-playing and rave music and hip-hop and acid house. And it was a weird, non-linear, hypertext, chaotic 
cultural scene. And we really saw digital technology as unleashing the collective human potential, that team human-y thing. What happens when we're one networked brain? It's going to be the Gaia hypothesis or something's going to happen. And the problem was unpredictable, weird countercultural people aren't dependable consumers. And business looked at the internet and said, wait a minute, we got to do something else with this. And really Wired Magazine was the one who came and said, we are going to claim this space for business. And what Wired's story was, was you can make a zillion dollars on this stuff, right? That this is going to be the salvation of the NASDAQ stock exchange. This is going to correct for what the biotech crash did to us in the 80s. The internet boom is going to do for us in the 90s. But once you're betting on technology, once you're speculating with money and you're making placing specific bets, then the object of the game is not to unleash the wild new potentials of humanity. The object of the game is to make this technology as predictable as possible because you've bet on outcomes. So then that's when they start turning the websites into uh, when they start talking about stickiness of websites and eyeball hours and, you know, using surveillance technology to make human beings more predictable. That's what all this social engineering through Facebook and Twitter and all is about. They use big data to figure out what category we're in and then use behavioral economics through our feeds to get us to behave true to our profiles. So the object of technology is to make us more predictable, to make us better bets for any business. It's doing whatever it's doing. It's using data to bet on our future and then damn well better make us, you know, live the way that they've bet. So the problem with the tech, the reason why it's so addictive is because it's built to be that way, to grow the platforms so, so that we spend 20% more hours on Instagram next year than we did this year and 20 more hours the year after that in increasingly predictable behaviors. The only way to move out of that is to almost force ourselves to be anomalous, to do weird shit, to just be, I mean, almost, and I do it almost as an exercise, just do what they don't suspect, become harder to track and understand. I mean, once you get it to the point where the ads that you're being sent have nothing to do with you, you know, you've succeeded, right? Because <laughs> it means you've confused, you've confused the algorithms. You know, there's a great Chrome extension that some friends of mine put together called Ad Nauseum. And what it does is it follows you on the web. It blocks all the ads from the websites, but in the background, it clicks on every single link that's sent to you. So you're just leaving this huge cloud of data behind you that the algorithms have no idea. Who is this person? Why did he click on everything? We can't A-B test. What do we do with him? So it's fun. I mean, that's a way to kind of fight back. In terms of, of fighting the addiction, it's, and it's really hard to do in a pandemic lockdown is spend as much real time as you can with other people. You know, make eye contact, uh, establish rapport, breathe with people. That's, you know, what I keep saying in Team Human is, you know, the conspiracy, literally conspiracy, conspire means breathe together. You know, that's the great conspiracy is people spending time in real spaces with each other, just hanging out. That is the revolt at this point, is reclaiming your time for stuff that has no utilitarian purpose, time that celebrates your relationships and the, the intrinsic value of just being a live human being. And I'm glad you mentioned COVID and how in this particular moment of pandemic, it has sort of exacerbated our use of technology because you know, unless you're in family groups or, you know, quarantining or, or wherever you might be, you don't have the ability to, you know, here in New York, many things are still closed, right? You don't have that opportunity to go into the Strand or go to your local bar or sit in Union Square and, and whatever the things you might do, they're less available to you. And now we're on Zoom calls and Zoom parties and all the different things. And and also the other little piece I want to add in there is the surveillance piece, which obviously has nefarious roots. But when you want to do testing for where people have been in terms of, you know, contact tracing, the surveillance starts to sound acceptable. 
right? So I'm, I'm trying to get to where we're in the flux because of the moment, but what are some of the things that are happening that can be maybe weaponized when we're no longer in this moment, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there's certainly trying to, just like after 9-11, people accepted a different kind of internet because, oh, we got to get the terrorists. Now in post-COVID, will we be, you know, more willing to be tracked in weird ways? And, you know, will that data end up just being abused by people who want to manipulate our behavior for nefarious ends? Yes, but... I'm wondering if our kind of enforced now overuse of these technologies might have a corresponding nausea later on. In other words, the fact that we have to do this now, I was doing like my 10th Zoom call of the day yesterday, (laughs) you know, and it was one I really, really didn't want to be on. And I had the thought, we're allowed to tell personal stories here, aren't we? Personal stories are more than welcome. All right. So when I was in like 10th grade, I was in a play where I was going to smoke a cigarette on stage. So I bought a pack of merits to learn how to smoke. And I was smoking a little bit, you know, and my dad found my pack of merits I said, oh, you want to smoke? Took me on the back porch. He made me smoke the whole fucking pack. One after the other, after the other. And I annoyed. And I started to get really dizzy at first. Then I got really sick and I started throwing up. You know, real, I was so, so sick. And I feel like now it's like, oh, you want to talk on the internet? What COVID's doing is coming and saying, here you go. Have stay on Zoom all day. Here you go. Have another Zoom. Have a chat. Have a Skype. Have an Instagram. Have a Twitter. Have a this. And uh, until we're all just like, you know, and I have that same almost physical feeling of, you know, after like the eighth cigarette, even though they were merits, after the eighth cigarette, it's like, oh, I can't take it anymore. And I never wanted to see another cigarette again as long as I lived. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of going to happen here. I just want to go outside. I want to touch people and and play with dogs. And, you know, this is just, I don't ever want to see it a friggin' video screen again. Yeah. I'm it's hoping, like a migraine, you know? I'm hoping that's the case because, you know, someone who's worked remote, this idea of working from home is not a new concept, right? I'm always clients moving around, coffee. The world is a place to work, quote unquote. And when you're forced to do it, however, it's like, you're right. Like, God, I just want to be outside, you know, (laughs) like I do not want to sit in front of screens all day. So I'm hoping that, and plus I think we're realizing that these things kind of suck, right? Like they're okay as an addendum to, but they're not that good for all the time. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And, you know, for me, I mean, I know there's an economic reality, but partly, you know, we work and we meet just to be with other people. You know, when you have a meeting that's just online, then it's purely utilitarian. And people are weird now. You know, I was in this meeting yesterday with some kind of PR people or whatever, and I saw a guy and his head was kind of turned. And I'm like, Dave, you, know, you okay? You know, you, he goes, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. You go, no, tell me what's going on, man. You know, if you're tired, well, you know, you don't got to be in this frigging thing. We can do this. Not- but people are like so almost taken aback that you would try to actually connect with them where they are, yeah, where they are, you know, internally about it's as if we don't recognize people's internal states anymore in this, you recognize their surface state and you're so focused on the utilitarian reason for the meeting that, ugh, I can't live my life like that. Yeah. There's no room for like just shooting a shit or the boondoggle, right? Like, I mean, I don't know. I think like so much of my valuable conversations and experiences don't always have a purpose or I walk into them thinking there's one purpose and then get into a whole nother thing that I didn't expect. Right. It's kind of a serendipity. That is, you know, and the, those office people, you know, those, all those theorists who like, like at steel case or whatever, who do the open office plan or the closed office plan or the cubes and the, this and the, that it's always about, I mean, they always fail, but the idea is always, 
we've got to try to create a space where people are going to have chance encounters. And that's where, you know, how are we going to recreate the bohemian cafes of Morocco in our workplace so that those serendipitous encounters happen and innovation will come out and all. And it is, I mean, you're right. And I have a feeling in the best of companies, the creative places that the best ideas happen like in the weird lunchroom settings or just strange places. And we don't, there's none of that when everything's intentional. Again, it's like male dominator plan the day. I'm living with my friggin' Google calendar invites or it's what's organizing my experience of life. I don't like being told by my Google calendar what chat I'm going to go into next. It's like, what happened to my, what happened to life then? This is, it's worse than matrix. At least in the matrix, you believe you're in it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. We're outside looking in like the reverse fishbowl, like, you know, what's going on in there? I want to see more of what's happening in this existence. You know, it's a crazy thing, but um, I want to also talk about how a lot of these platforms, particularly now that we're in, you know, we talked about this kind of political pandemonium. There's, you know, racial unrest due to the extrajudicial murdering of Black people, not just men by the hands of law enforcement. And, you know, everything's coming to a new head. I say new head because this ain't necessarily new, but it's just the newest edition. And it just seems like there's so, it's so hard for people to grasp information. And I don't think we're dumber than we've ever been. But I don't know. I I look around and I see like memes that are obviously false. And I'm like, how are you sharing this? Or like information that's just bad. You know, we're allowed to lies have just become another part of the story. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it seems like these a lot of these platforms actively participated in that. So all of that editorializing is to kind of get your thoughts on why we seem to be struggling with just capturing information and truth in the general sense of truth, right? Or, or maybe you don't think we're having that problem and I'm the one who thinks we're having that problem, but I just yeah, want to put that I mean, we're, we're partly we're having trouble establishing basic coherence, you know? And the reason why we don't have coherence is because we used to establish, we get our coherence through the natural cycles of day and night and seasons, you know, Human coherence, and I would argue animal coherence too, but certainly human coherence is based on a whole lot of biological clocks that are actively repressed, you know, with you know electric lights and plane travel and medicines and nutrients and computer screens and color temperature. And so we're, we're I mean, the sky is different now than it was when I was a kid. I'd go outside. I was not living in, you know, the backwoods of Alabama or something. I lived in the same suburbs, but you'd look up at the sky at night and there was this stars, you know, there was a moon phase and it was just so much easier to be connected to uh, uh, the heavens and all this stuff that subconsciously we know what moon phase is. It is. And, you know, biologically, different moon phases are associated with different neuro, neurotransmitters in the body. You know, there's one week of the, of the lunar cycle where you're serotonin dominant, one week where you're dopamine dominant, one week is acetylcholine dominant. Indigenous people knew this on some level, which is why they structured their month so differently. And the new moon was a certain ceremony and when you made it and when you cut down trees. And now we know when you cut down trees in certain part of the moon cycle, the pores are closed. So, you know, it will bleed out more slowly. Whereas if you do it when they're open, the wood dries faster. I mean, there's all this stuff that, oh, they knew this all along and we're just discovering it with our brilliant science. But we're so disconnected that it's hard to establish coherence that way. And the other problem is our sense-making apparatus hasn't yet developed to match the technology and media around us. You know, we had just gotten to the place where you could kind of make sense of television. We were sort of up to that. And then this crap comes and, you know, these smartphones and people don't know how to make sense of a Twitter feed and how to how to look at the source of something. They're not behaving as intellectual critics when they're looking at an Instagram feed. They're emotional and the interfaces are designed to keep us 
from using our frontal cortex and our deliberative faculties. You know, they're they're reaching right into the brain stem and trying to stimulate fight or flight responses. You know, we know how to do it. We can watch the evening news. And most of us are smart enough to know that there's going to be three stories of a young black man who's done some bad thing. And that the communication of the news is, we all know it, is be afraid of black guys, right? Yeah. That's what local news is for. But we all know that, right? We know that. We really, we used to, but we don't know that on Twitter. We don't know that it's trying to make us think that, oh, the Jews and Soros are planting bricks in places. And we just get outraged and retweet and go, oh my God, George Soros is putting bricks in New York City to try to, why would he do that? What? It's like, what are you looking at? You're looking at a Twitter post from an account that's been there for eight minutes, you know, yeah. <laughs> and is trolling some famous person. So it's like people don't know how to make sense in these environments. So that's what's interesting to me moving forward is who's going to help us make sense? What are we going to use? Are we going to use religions, brands, experts, media? What are going to be the the the, the places and institutions and technologies and platforms and things people use to make sense in the future. And I think that's almost as big as like Tim O'Reilly's kind of web 2.0 when he was originally looking at, you know, oh, it's not the individual websites that matter. It's going to be who can aggregate the websites. Those are going to be the people who make money in the next thing. And that, that did happen. And I think now it's going to be, where are people going? What is the what is the internet equivalent of the anchor store in the mall? You know, in the mall, you'd walk out of, uh, you know, Zara or something and not know where you are in the mall. You look to the left and the right, you see the anchor store, the JC Pennies yeah. or the Macy's, and you know where you are. Yeah. You know, what are these anchor <laughs> stores in the mall of digital existence? I don't know what they are yet. And the people and institutions that emerge as those anchors, those anchoring, navigational, sense-making tools and platforms are going to be really shaping the next reality. And it's interesting with the example that you used of like local news and how we know those frames and the stories you're trying to tell us, the internet becomes less clear, the internet as a broad term. And it kind of makes me think back to the earlier part of the conversation we were talking about the past and having like a deep, not, you know, certain societies that had that circular story, they were able to link to things that we are now kind of rediscovering. It's, it's one of the reasons why I always say, if you want to understand the future, probably look backwards, right? Like there's just as much to learn from what has already happened as like the speculation of just right. coming up with like, oh, flying cars and all the rest right. of it, right? But we think the past has nothing to teach us because those are the primitive people from before. Like the guys who built the Fukushima nuclear power plant, they built it under the markings from their ancestors that said, don't build anything past this point. Yeah. <laughs> and then the things get flooded and now we're all going to die from the radiation that's still pouring out of that place. And it's like, why? Because they didn't believe their elders. Their elders were trying to tell them there's some cycles that are bigger than you might see in the span of your own generation. We've seen them. So we're going to put markers for you to understand this is the wisdom of thousands of years of your ancestors. And we just go, oh, screw them. We're smart. We got better technology than they did. You know, and it's like, no, you can't fight Mother Nature here, you know? And that's like, that's such an interesting point because there's a there's a section where in, in I think in Team Human, when you talk about um, AI and how it's sort of this learning network interface, right? Where they kind of learn what to do in order to get us to continue to feed that dopamine. And I think about that raised the question in my mind as to how do we become better networked, but in that griot, that kind of ancient way, like, you know, griots had the knowledge of the community. They would have all the stories of the community and they would share that. And when the griot passed away, they would you know, before that, they would train others to have those stories, but that 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 passing was significant for the community. But it was kind of a networked way of passing on knowledge. Like, how can we reclaim that to tell another story? Be in the same way that AIs are networking to tell us a particular story or reinforce certain behaviors. Is there a way to do that? 
I mean, there is. I mean, you're in some ways you're talking about the transition of an oral culture to a literate culture. You know, and once we started writing things down and then got printing presses, it was elites who decided what stories remained rather than the shaman or the folk even who decided what stories would stay. I mean, as we move into a digital media environment, I'm wondering whether that's sort of more oral or more literate. You know, what kind of cultural memory will it engender? I understand that television was about fantasy and hallucination and pictures in our heads and all. Digital seems a lot more about memory, about memory and retrieval, about, you know, which is why there's all these histories coming up. So in a certain way, I mean, it's not memory that we keep on board in our head the way the people you're describing would. You know, they had a certain, the stories were efficient because these stories could compartmentalized. They were almost like compression on mm -hmm. a certain like digital compression because a story could hold, like take something like Torah or a great mythical story. And it's like, oh, there's like 10,000 different meanings that are embedded in this thing. So it, it unfolds, you know, the digital, everything's a kind of a one-to-one -one correspondence, you know, so you got to compress it mathematically, but nothing is, nothing is dimensionalized the way, the way we dimensionalize stuff in our heads. So I'm wondering what kind of memory we get. I don't think that's established quite yet. I mean, in China, they're actively working on that problem. They're actively talking about it. So in China, what they're doing now is teaching Confucius and the Tao in elementary school because they understand that the migration to a digital media environment is going to require us to recall what is our cultural history? Who are we? What is our society about? If we were doing that in the West, We'd be teaching Aristotle in school, theory of causes and what's formal cause of humanity and what is the human soul and the psyche and how does that relate to matter and everything else? What is the West's understanding of the world and to understand it consciously rather than just willy nilly? You know, so it has yet to be seen. I mean, I'm hoping that we retrieve some of these storytelling faculties, and particularly the post-linear ones, the non-linear ones, and see mm -hmm. what is that like? What are these kind of choose-your-own-adventures? What is it to sit around a fire and tell, make up a story ourselves? And there's some of that. Fantasy role-playing seems like the beginning of a different kind of story. There's people finally, you know, ripping off um, James Carse's Infinite Games. There's like three books now that, not really crediting him, talk about the inf Infinite Games as the new, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, as the new modality. I'm sure he's fine with it, though. He was a religion professor. He doesn't care. But this open-ended narrative. So, so we'll see. But I tend to look for it in art and culture more than, you know, in business and politics. Say. Yeah. Yeah. And- you know, I want to, before I get to the last two segments of the show, I want to just get like, just a, you know, take the temperature, right? Like we've talked a lot about a lot of stuff. We had a couple of jokes before we started actually recording amongst ourselves. Like, you know, we're in precarious times, you know, for, I think, I think people are feeling a little off center. That's, that's the sense I get when I have conversations with any number of folks. And it's, it's interesting. These conversations are global. You know, if I'm talking to people in different parts of the world, they're kind of like, what the fuck's going on there? Right. Or they're like, you know, how is this happening? Or, you know, there's a lot of questions, but then there are questions in their own spaces as well. If I talk to my friends in Brazil, they're not doing so great. Right. This is, is, is an example. Right. There's a lot of angst, I think, when it seemed like not so long ago, it seemed like there's a lot of hope, you know, and somehow if I look at from, let's take a demarcation of 2008 to now, right? Can I kind of live in this pre-Obama, post-Obama world? I think is a good thing everyone recognizes, right? It just seems like that switch was so like sneaky <laughs> and it all turned upside down so quick. It went from like, we won to what the hell happened? <laughs> um, and so I say all that to say, like, I would love like some of your, you know, perspective on glass half empty, glass half full. I tend to be cynical. So I'm kind of going to give, give my, so you can feel comfortable if you are leaning towards cynicism, because as a history guy, I feel like I've seen this movie before. <laughs> it's different now, but the same. So I'm curious, like, what should I be on the lookout for? And, and what do you think? Well, Although I, I believe, you know, Obama was a brilliant man and meant well. I was 
as enthusiastic about his candidacy as I wanted to be because I felt like there was more branding going on than actual cultural engineering and change. You know, and I remember writing a piece before he got the nomination even asking, it was called like Brand Obama and saying, you know, he's saying the stuff that I was saying in like my book, Present Shock or whatever. He's saying, we are the change we've been waiting for and that his candidacy is going to be, or his presidency will be an invitation for us to participate in civics in a real way. And he better make good on that. And he came in and rather than, and during an economic crisis, rather than inviting us to remake the economy as a circular economy from the bottom up, the technology was already there. He could have just written a PDF and distributed it to every mayor in the country and said, here's how you start a favor bank. Here's how you start a local currency. Here's how you do local reinvestment. Instead, he gives money to the banks to lend to corporations, to build factories, to give people exploitative jobs and reifies the very extractive corporate economy that got us into the problem in the first place. So it was a squandered opportunity. And then I saw Occupy Wall Street come up which was basically Obama's supporters coming and saying, well, look, if you're not going to invite us, we're going to have to just do this ourselves. Meanwhile, America elected a black president who then didn't deliver on a progressive agenda. So you end up getting the worst of both worlds. You get all these white people who are completely freaked out that there's a black person who's president because they don't like black people and they're afraid of them. And there he is. And he's from Africa and he's an Arab and he's Osama bin Laden and all that. So you get all that. We're losing our country to the black people. And at the same time, we don't get the progress that a black person could have brought to it. So we end up with a, a Clintonian middle ground sort of neoliberal policy you know, health care, yes, it's good to have health care for the people, but it's health care by insurance companies for America, you know, which is, you know, the Bill Clinton kind of style of, of politics and so much hate and fear that got built up. So I feel like we got Trump and fascism largely because so much of America was not ready for a black president. And that was compounded by the fact that the black president didn't actually help grow a civil society. So now without a civil society, we have militarized cops gunning down people, you know, black people in American cities. It's like, it's really, I mean, and I'm watching step by step America move towards real fascism. Yeah. You know, the next step in the story is the fascist steals an election and his party goes along with it. You know, so whether it's they do enough voter suppression and uh, delegitimizing of the mail-in votes and all the COVID stuff as to just steal the election that way, or whether he's voted out of office but doesn't leave, you know, which he doesn't have to. Then what he's doing now by training police forces and the military to illegally quell demonstrations, he's kind of training them for November. You know, to take orders that you don't really feel comfortable about. You know, all you better mow down those people. <laughs> you know, once, so, once you start, it's easier to it's easier to keep going, right? Like that's how right. this all works. Right? Once we kind of get the situation normalized, that quote unquote normalized, you know, I can't disagree with some stuff. I think there's a lot of context in there because when I look at the frame of where we are, and then I'm going to get into the segments, the last couple segments of the show, as I'm watching the timer click down and I want to get you back to living your life. You know, a lot of these trends, and this is why I always say, it's like, we've seen this movie before, right? Like in the sense that I can understand Obama from a certain perspective, because I think, and I'm guessing because I don't know him, I've done some stuff with him when he was running for the Senate just to fundraise and get money in his pocket. Cause I, I was a supporter. Yeah. I and think I'm, I'm just to admit, I didn't mean to trash. I love listening to him. No, I no, I don't take it that he's way. Way smarter, no, way dude. smarter than me. I get that. I'm just like, dude, someone's got a Bernie eyes are, yeah. and Obama would have been such a better Bernie than I think Bernie. I think this is, this is my, what I offer is that Obama is kind of like when you 
walk into many corporate environments, you won't see many Black faces. And some of those Black faces, they feel a certain way in their heart, but they are not empowered to say the thing or, or do the thing. And I think what's interesting is that we think, well, fuck it, he's the president. But I still think you're walking in there with <laughs> some of that. He had Congress and stuff also there. Like yeah. you didn't like. Yeah. You, you're still walking in there with some of that. Like, eh, I can't really push this butt That's so true. far. That's true. And to be you fair, know? also, he <laughs> went in. He went into a Congress and the day he's elected, the Congress basically says, we are going to spend the next four years just stopping whatever he does. Whatever you do. Period. <laughs> so then he comes and says, okay, let's do what you want then. Here's your, let's do this Republican plan that you guys just put out. How about that? Like, no, 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 we don't want to do that either. Yeah. So it was like, okay, they won't even do their own agenda when he's president. It's like, oh, and that, that in some ways felt like the black man's plight. It's yeah. like, okay, I'll be white. I'll be you. I'll do what you want. No, you can't do that either. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a tough trap, you know. So I give him leeway yeah. for that because yeah, it's it's hard to walk in there and do everything you want to do, you know. And that's one of those challenges and these ideas of fascism. Like we've seen this story, right? Like we've had Lindbergh and we've had the apologist and the eugenics experiments in the late nineteenth century and early twentieth century. Like the playbook is built in American soil. And really in American blood. Yeah. You know, and we, it's coming, it's so coming back. It's so, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think, but you know, and people don't even believe that a lot of like 30% of Americans don't believe the Nazis were here, you know, yeah. that Auschwitz happened. So, yeah, so we got to oh well. fight it everywhere we can and tell those past stories. Right. Cause when I talk to friends and they're like, Oh, fascism, I'm like, well, where'd you think they learned that from? Right. Like here's, a good list of books to kind of check out, right. War against the week. And there's a bunch of, Right. Yeah. Um, and we got to do that work. And I, and I want to get to the other segments. This has been awesome. Um, so these are quick, man. The first one is off the dome. I just asked you a couple of quick questions and you literally just tell me first thing off the top of your head, or as we say, off the dome. Right. Off the dump? The dome. Oh, I thought the dump. I thought it was like, here's my little poops. Nah. Okay. The dome. No. Off the dome. Brain. The head okay. dome. Okay. Oh, cause you're bald. Yeah. <laughs> I am and have been for a while. So the first question is about our favorite CEO, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. On a scale of one to 10, one being awful and 10 being truly terrible. Where do we rank Mark Zuckerberg as a CEO? <laughs> so, so 10 is worst and one is least worst, but bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the, if you were already starting with bad, I mean, so 10 would be like a Hitler CEO. Um, <laughs> Even I wouldn't go that far. 10 is just, you're yeah. bad, you're, you're terrible. <laughs> Not genocide terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, depends how you define CEO and what his, what his job is, you know? But I would put him in the, the middle to high bad, like seven. Okay, that's a good number. That's a good number. We've talked a lot about technology. We've talked a lot about devices. What is the one piece of technology or device that you're looking forward to using the least going forward? So what's your least favorite app or device currently? Webcam. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tired of the webcam. I am. And I still, I've never had webcam sex or anything either, which maybe <laughs> would make me like it more or okay. something, <laughs> but I don't like it. No. Okay. And the last one I want to talk about is we've, we've talked a lot about the public square. This kind of has come up in a lot of your books, this idea of where we should meet and gather as humans. What's the one essential thing that every public square should have? People giving each other the benefit of the doubt, you know, goodwill. All right. <laughs> Good one. I like that. I like that. Goodwill. That's a very positive way of looking at it. You know what I mean? It could be a freaking empty, vacant lot with cinder blocks and dead rats. But if when you gather there, it's like you're giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Then you've got a public square. All right. Awesome. Slack. Just give us, give me some fucking slack, man. All right. And then, then no one gives each other slack anymore. You know, Twitter is a public square. It's like a friend of my wife's tweeted trans black lives matter. 
And she got like thousands of people are just, just wailing on her. You're not allowed to say that now. It's got to just be Black Lives Matter. And the fact that you said Trans Lives Matter is bad and all these reasons and things. I'm like, man, just cut her some slack, you know? Yeah. We can you be. Can say, look, if there's a real problem with what you said, you say, well, you might need to read this, you know, and reconsider your post. But come on, she's trying to just help her folks, you yeah. know? We need a little um, goodwill, a little compassion. There's a really good book that I'm not doing my job right now, but Joyful Militancy, which is really good, that talks about these ideas of how we bring people together and using compassion, even in moments of struggle, in order to be more inviting rather than dismissive. Right. The thing they were saying that Elizabeth Warren was one of these, what are the cheerful warriors or something? There's like a. Yeah, she has a term like that. You know, and it's like, as opposed to Bernie, who was just like angry. She was like, come on, we can do this. It's okay. We're going to, you know, that there's this other, and I got to develop that too, because I just get aggro. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be in. I've had a few. Of those I, wanted, I gotta read myself. that. I gotta read that. It's just got too much cortisol thrown through my blood all the time, and yeah. I just. Wow. I highly, you know? I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a beautiful book, and it's actually very well designed. I'll, 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 I'll send you a picture right. of it. So you no, because you're, you're a happier person than I am, and you, Dude, you're a black man. I mean, you you've be, been you'd be held on way more, <laughs> way more than me. So I should learn. It I depends. Learn it depends on the moment, my friend. It depends <laughs> on the moment. <laughs> I want to get us into the drop, which is a recommendation from you and me. So I have a drop and you have a drop. I could go okay. first. If yeah, you, you go first. So I can I can pretend to be listening while I think about mine. Okay, there you go. All right. So my drop is really easy. And actually, I don't typically do this. I try to find something that doesn't exist within work I've created. But given what's going on in everywhere, I, I interviewed Professor Timothy Snyder from Yale. He's a historian. He's written many amazing books, and I had the opportunity to interview him twice now. One, when he released On Tyranny, which was lessons around how we avoid, you know, tyranny, as the book suggests. And then I interviewed him again last year on an essay he wrote around the turning test and, and what this means for humanity. And mm. you'd actually love the essay, actually, if you haven't read it. Um, and so I would recommend both of those podcast episodes for folks to to listen to. So both of my conversations with Timothy Snyder, I think are useful in the times that we're in now. So that's my drop. So it can be, it can just be a fun drop too. Yeah, it right? can be fun. It doesn't need to be all right. just something that you would want our listeners to maybe take a minute to check out. You know what? I mean, this is a more a recommendation for something new and different. Duncan Trussell is this uh, comedian guy, and he has a really weird animated Netflix show called Midnight Gospel, where they took his podcast episodes and then they create these kind of weird animated stories around them. And the thing I'm liking about it is it's like trippy stoner talk on a certain level. But what he's dealing with really is these are conversations that in one way or another deal with death and the cycle of life. They're almost like doing a meditation where you realize you can just sort of watch the human drama go by in your own life from a little bit from above and realize all these things I'm concerned about are just the background to some from really the movement of my soul through this dimension for a while. And I've just found it, oddly enough, really comforting right now when the real world on the ground thing seems so dire. It's like, oh, there is a bigger, there's a bigger picture here. So uh, yeah, Duncan Trussell, Midnight Gospel is, uh, has awesome. been a good relief for me. That's awesome. That is a fantastic drop. Um, I've actually, I have that saved in my Netflix queue, so I haven't gotten to it yet, but it's in my list. It's trippy. And if you have access or predilection to, you know, any kinds of like mind altering herbal remedies, it's that's something good, good that it's a good combination with this particular show. Okay. <laughs> Double drop right there. <laughs> Douglas, this has been awesome. I always love when we can get a chance to chat. I really honestly yeah. appreciate it. Beyond all the branding of the show, you're one of my favorite people to kind of just chop it up with. So I appreciate you taking the time and joining me on the show. Oh, this is a good conversation. This is the best of the three conversations we've had for media. This is by far the best one, I think. You oh, know? awesome. See, there's a, there's an extra plug. Yeah. <laughs> Brother, it's been great. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. 
It's been a pleasure having Douglas Rushkoff join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.